1: you're listening to the exchange here's today's show thank you very much scott and welcome to the exchange i'm kelly evans and here's what's ahead bond yields have dropped sharply in recent weeks but our guest says not so fast He thinks the 10-year is headed back over 5% next year and is in the no-landing camp on the economy. We'll debate ahead of tomorrow's big jobs report. Plus, airline stocks rebounding today, but it's been a disappointing few months for many of them. And yet one supplier is hitting its highest levels of the year. That CEO joins us in an exclusive ahead. And there are two housing stocks our analyst says are especially well-positioned into the new year. And he's a name you can trust. He's got the names and how much upside he sees ahead. Before all that, though, let's start with the markets. Dom has our read and our numbers and the momentum. And what do you make of it all, Dom?
2: The momentum's been in certain parts of the market, Kelly, and specifically within technology stocks. And that's the reason why you have the NASDAQ composite, the NASDAQ 100, the large cap names in there really doing a lot of the heavy lifting. It's green across the screen right now, but it wasn't like that during this morning. It was a very mixed trade. But as, as things stand, I, men- I mentioned the NASDAQ composite. It's up nearly 200 points, 190 points to the upside, one and a third percent gains, 14,337. The Dow Industrial is the real laggard, only up one quarter of 1% or 92 points, 36,146. And the S&P 500, that broader measure of the stock market, 45.85 is the last trade there, up about 36, 37 points, three quarters of 1% gain. This, by the way, would represent just around session highs at this point. At the highs of the session, just about up 37 to the downside. Well, if I could write on there, it would say 37 points, 16 points to the upside, on the, on the uh, lower end of things. We'll keep an eye on that. Oil prices also trying to find some positivity right now, trying to not to work off of, towards a six-day losing streak. As you can see, just about flat on the session right now, still below $70 per barrel for U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate, $69.35. The level that a lot of folks are still watching right now is $78. That's right there, as you can see, that $78 mark is where that long-term 200-day moving average is. So keep an eye on crude prices. Remember, it was supply concerns for gasoline yesterday that drove a good amount of the downside, trying to find some bit of stability today. And then Kelly mentioned the airline stocks. Let me show you just how strong they are today. They're among some of the biggest gainers overall in the market. Now JetBlue Airways up 13%, They updated their fourth quarter and full year sales growth guidance better than it was prior. And so that's helping that particular move. And by the way, they're saying holiday travel trends better than they thought they were going to be. So that's a big deal. Southwest Air, Delta Airlines, American Airlines, United Airlines, among the S&P 500 airline stocks that are catching a bid because of that. So keep an eye on those airline stocks. And Kelly, I know you're going to be talking much more about that aircraft trade later on this show.
1: Indeed. Dom, thank you very much. Our Dominic Chu. Well, has the drop in yields gone too far too fast? The 10-year yield is down nearly a full percentage point since hitting a 16-year high. The TLT Treasury bond ETF has surged 16% in less than two months. And in fact, November's 9.5% gain is its best month since the start of the pandemic. The ETF on track to post back-to-back positive months for only the second time in two years. But have investors gotten carried away with Fed rate-cut hopes? Steve Leisman is here with A Closer Look. Steve?
3: Hey Kelly, yeah, just weeks after that ten-year hit five percent, and markets worried could the government fund its deficit? Bonds have rallied and yields have fallen, and what has been the biggest bond boom of the year? The opposite of what happened several weeks ago. The yield on the ten-year has fallen eighty-seven basis points since the mid uh, in mid October touched near five percent, and thirty-seven of those eighty-seven they've come just since. Thanksgiving, which wasn't all that long ago. What's at play here? Well, better inflation data, including that decline in oil that Don was talking about. Repricing of the Fed and Fed rate cuts. We'll talk more about that in a second. Hedge funds covering shorts. Everybody was sure it was going higher. They were wrong. Then pension funds and insurance companies come in to lock in those longer rates, driven in part by the growing belief the Fed is done hiking and is going to cut. Take a look at that. In mid-October, the market was priced for about 70 basis points of cuts next year. That has nearly doubled with 130, actually 134 basis points of cuts now built into the futures markets beginning, by the way, as soon as the March meeting. Rick Reeder, though, from BlackRock, he tells me, I think the front end is over its skis. I don't think they're going to ease in March, so that's something to think about. Here's something else to think about. Markets are going to watch carefully another round of massive Treasury auctions next week after poor auction results led to stock sell-offs a few months ago. Three- and six-month bills, $143 billion. got your three-year notes, your 10-year notes, your 30-year bonds. Wait for Santelli's grade on those. That's going to be important. For now, it seems lower inflation, hedge funds short covering, and a belief in deep deep rate cuts by the Fed next year is going to calm fears about how the government funds the $33 trillion deficit. But... Tomorrow's jobs number, if it comes in strong, could challenge the rate cut hypothesis and enthusiasm. And some also expect Kelly, Fed Chair Jay Powell, next week to push back on the rate cut pricing, which has fueled this bond rally.
1: So we have those bond auctions next week, and we're going to hear from him, Steve.
3: Yeah, all in one week. Wow. All one package. <laughs> you got your jobs report tomorrow, so don't 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 go anywhere because you got to keep CNBC on here. You got. Jobs tomorrow. You got three big bond auctions next week, and you got Fed Chair Jay Powell. And don't forget the Fed, the CNBC Fed Survey comes on Tuesday.
1: Th- that's that's on the calendar too. Uh, Steve, stay with us. We appreciate it as we debate where sure. bonds could go from here. One of my next guests warns that yields will shoot higher next year. Let's bring in Jim Bianco, president of Bianco Research, and Nancy Tangler. She's here on set with me, and she's CEO and chief investment officer of Laffer Tangler Investments. Welcome to uh, everybody, Jim. You can just tee things off here with what's becoming. What was a consensus call maybe a month ago and suddenly is out of consensus, but you're sticking with this idea that uh, bond yields could yet go higher.
4: Yeah, I've been uh, that way for three years, and I don't think that the, um, the move that we've had right now is over. I actually think we're in a multi-year bear market in bonds. It started in 2020. Uh, usually you get a recession or a, down, or a serious downturn in the economy because something breaks, um, either it's spiking crude oil prices or a pandemic or a financial crisis or something like that. This time around, everybody thinks the thing that's going to break the economy is high rates. But more and more, the evidence is high rates are a drag on the economy. They're not you know, helpful in some areas, but they are helpful in other areas because of interest income, and I don't think it breaks it. So I think what we're gonna see for the economy for, the, for 24 is what we saw in 23. We'll churn out 2%, 2.5% uh, quarters like we have been. I don't think inflation makes it all the way to 2%. We're going to have strong nominal growth. And I think that bond yields could probably see 5.5% somewhere in 2024. So the move down so far has been surprising and painful if you've been on the bear side like I have. But I still think the broader trend is still higher for rates.
1: Nancy, you can... It's one of these things with the macro where you could almost completely ignore it, except for all of the extremes that we've been through. You know, even the bond move has been dizzying for a lot of investors. Where does it leave you kind of positioned into next year?
5: Well, I certainly agree uh, with Jim's view in 2020. We, we argued then that uh, bonds were riskier than stocks. But now I'm drawing an analogy to the 1990s when I was not only alive, but I was managing <laughs> other people's money. And uh, there's there's a lot of similarities. And you don't really need to see rates uh, go... Lower, We were at 5 to 8% on the tenure during the entire decade. Wow. We don't need to see inflation go back to 2%, and I agree with Jim, I don't think it will. Uh, we were at 3%. There was an inverted yield curve, a soft landing, a war, a recession. I mean, there was just everything that you needed. And one of the most important things was the VIX stayed under 18 for most of the decade while the stock market roared. So I think we're slowing. Um, I don't know that we're going to get a recession, but I want to own those reliable growers going into a slowing economic environment.
1: I was reading some trader commentary this morning, and the tech traders kind of have their head in their hands. Now, maybe today a little bit different story, but we haven't really seen the performance from the MAG7, for instance, that we were able to rely on. Does that affect you you that much? Or is that, some take it as a healthy sign into next year? I, I think it's both. I think you want to use the weakness, the recent weakness,
5: and if we get further weakness, uh, to add to those names. Because the generative AI, total addressable market, I just gave a presentation on the fourth industrial revolution. You need to own these stocks in your portfolio. If the market broadens out, I mean, that's good for every portfolio manager because we have to be diversified. So I think um, our theme is old economy companies that are embracing the digital revolution, generative AI, cloud computing, and then the suppliers of of the tools you need to get there. But you're
1: sticking with Microsoft, you're sticking with Adobe, you're sticking with Broadcom, names like that. Yeah, well...
5: Broadcoms reporting today. So I'm going to hedge myself. If yeah. it goes up, it's one of our largest holding. If it goes down, you want to buy more. It's the poor man's Nvidia <laughs> yeah. and I think you want to I think you want to own that stock.
1: Well, Jim, let me turn back to this discussion about bond yields because in one of the things you described is that you're in this no landing camp. And certainly this year the recession never came. <laughs> just there were time yeah. we had the June rise in jobless claims that made it look imminent and then that went away. We do have this rise in the unemployment rate, but if tomorrow's really strong, maybe that goes away. Um, so how important is that that we just have a continually expanding economy in order for us to get you know bonds behaving like you describe?
4: Well, I think that's central to the whole argument here is that the no landing camp is just an expansion. We just continue to expand on the economy. It's not the soft landing camp. I've been critical of soft landings because it doesn't have a definition. I don't know what exactly it means, and you could actually argue we've never ever had one a soft landing. So if if the if labor continues to show the strength that it has, two hundred twenty thousand um, initial claims today is historically a very low number. We're still under four percent on the unemployment rate. Uh, it, then I think it really does augur this argument that. The labor market is healthy. I think a lot of employees feel good about the labor market. That's why we've seen labor hoarding and we've seen a lot of turnover. The quits rate is still very elevated from where it was pre-pandemic, meaning people are willing to quit their job and take another job or quit their job because they're comfortable they're going to get employed. And if they're comfortable they're going to get employed, they keep spending. So I know we've always focused on excess savings, but I really think it's more about labor confidence that's got the spending going. And Mm -hmm. that's why the economy confounds everybody by never quite making it to a recession, even though it kind of bounces around. Mm.
3: So I agree with a lot of what Jim has said, and, and, and I think Jim is bringing a sort of economic view to the discussion that's sorely lacking among many people, which is that, hey, if the government's going to spend all this money on debt, it's going to be giving the money to somebody, and that money gets back into the economy. The other thing I think that Jim does well is this notion that um, everybody's been focused on this savings thing, and, and nobody's really been focused on the idea that so many people are employed to bring home paychecks as central to the outcome. The only thing i think I'd push back a little bit on, Jim, when I think about 5.5% on the 10-year, now maybe you're saying it just gets there. I'm just not sure if we end up being in an environment of, say, steady inflation in the 2 to 2.5% range, not a 100% sure why you would have long bonds at 5.5%. Maybe that's a long-term cost of funds or a real rate. Or are you saying, Jim, I guess my question is, that there's still an issue with the government funding this enormous amount of debt for which uh, uh, investors are requiring a premium in order to fund it?
4: A little bit of all of the above. What I, the way I arrive at five and a half percent is I think we're going to be at like two two and a half percent on real growth. That's what we were in twenty three. continuing it into twenty four. I'm a little bit more hawkish on inflation. I think that the bottom on inflation is okay. around three percent. I'm talking core. Core is at four now. It bottoms somewhere around three. Add those two together, and you're a little bit above five. That's nominal GDP growth. That's inflation plus real. Typically, interest rates should trade around the nominal GDP level. And yes, I'm going to put a little bit of a premium on it because of the big budget deficits and the amount of funding that we have to do. And that's how I arrive at five and a half percent. Now, if the economy is weaker than I think, if inflation's weaker than I think, or the budget deficit or tax receipts come in stronger, I'll adjust it along the way. But right now, I feel very confident in that number.
1: Does that real quickly, Jim, not that we usually talk to you about your equity calls, but I mean, you are constructive on the economy. So does that leave you also bullish on stocks?
4: To a point. And the point is, I think people have to recognize Dr. Jeremy Siegel wrote a book, Stocks for the Long Run. He put out a new edition this year. Summarize it. The long term uh, prospect for stocks is around 8 percent. If I could get five in a money market fund, I'm getting two thirds of the stock market with no market risk. What was it gonna take me to take that final leap for that final third? This is far different to 2019, when I was getting zero in a money market fund. I think the competition of higher rates is going to continue to be a problem for the stock market. So why I'm in favor of stock picking. I think that's coming back into vogue now. Hmm. Peter Lynch can come out of retirement because we're no longer going to be picking broad-based ETFs. We're going to be picking individual stocks. Well,
1: except that he would be coming out of retirement for 20 years based on how often we've heard that it's going to be the year that that, ma- that, that matters. I'll right. give you the last word, Nancy.
5: Oh, I, I listen, I think the job market has start, started to show weakness. I also think the consumer is strong because most people all, are working, but also they spend out of their net worth. And the baby boomer generation has half of the nation's net worth. They are still spending. That said, we are seeing some cracks in labor. I think I think we're going to uh, continue to see um, uh, industrials kind of bottom out here with the PMIs. And then I think you have an opportunity for a really strong market. So I would disagree with Jim on that. I do think you want to own stocks here even uh,
1: with a 5% money market rate, if he's right. Or even with a weak, you know, cracks in the economy that you describe, isn't that usually the time to get a little cautious?
5: It is, but I think we're in a different, I mean, everything about this whole cycle has been different. And so we are working off of the pandemic um, excesses. And I think you have to step back and it is a stock pickers market for sure, which is why I think you wanna be focused on technology. I think you wanna own um, industrials overweight because they tend to do well as the PMIs are bottoming. And then I think you have to just um, PICK GREAT NAMES WITHIN EACH OF THE OTHER SECTORS. Based on our theme, we're buying companies that are using digitization to improve margins, uh, generative AI to improve product development. And so that that's where we're making our bets.
1: All right, McDonald's, Domino's. I mean, everywhere I yeah. look lately, they, these are examples yeah. of the ones trying to adopt it. We'll leave it there. Thank you all today. Thank we you. appreciate it, Nancy Tangler, Jim Bianco, and our own Steve Leisman. Now to the labor market. On the eve of tomorrow's big jobs report, we learned this morning new jobless claims remain at levels consistent with a strong number. The four-week moving average on continuing claims, its highest level in two years, but it also retreated somewhat last week. So is the labor market still going strong? Let's ask Recruiter.com Chairman Evan Sohn. Evan, (laughs) you know, in some ways the trend from a 30,000-foot point of view should seem obvious. The labor market is slowing, and yet it seems it's not slowing enough that it really is making that much of a difference right now.
6: Yeah, well, uh, good to see you again. Look, I think the segment you just had talked about candidate sentiment, and we saw the same thing for the second month in a row. The candidate sentiment uh, increased to 3.5 out of five. So a year ago it was at 3.7. So that means that candidates are feeling okay uh, leaving one job for another. At the same time, recruiter sentiment is down to 2.7 out of out of five, a low on the recruiter sentiment, a sort of this leading indicator for where things are actually happening. And we also saw from the Joel report about 8% fewer job openings. So there are fewer job openings. There's more volume, as you just showed, for those fewer jobs with less compensation. Compensation is not increasing as much as it was uh, certainly a year ago. So that's making the recruiters, uh, really, their sentiment be at an all-time low uh, relative to the overall year. But as you just said in the last segment, you're seeing a very consistent quit rate uh, that's higher than pre-pandemic levels and a higher rate that's also consistent.
1: Interesting. So this, this is a bit of a, a divergence or something new. Recruiter sentiment, lowest of the year, 2.7 out of 5. A serious decrease in open jobs driving an increase in application volume. So more work for fewer open jobs. And interestingly, also point out, only 11% of them saw an increase in compensation.
6: That's right. So this date the you know, the days of hire at any cost and just get people and, and, you know, get people fill the seats, that's over. Yet, as we just learned, candidates still are comfortable leaving their jobs. So they're comfortable they could find a job. They're more comfortable than they were in the past, but it's at a less of a compensation level.
1: Yeah. What does this point to you then? Uh, you know, and again, the, the kind of um, the pain trade tomorrow, I think, is a strong number, right? That kind of upends what's been going on with bonds, sends yields higher again, and all the rest of it. But if we stay on trend, then it sounds like the trend is that we've been slowing.
6: That's that's correct. And you look at, you know, in the AURA report, we talked about this last month, the AURA report on on job trends, you know the top industries were actually staffing and recruiting. So that's a good sign for the future. When companies start hiring more recruiters, they're looking for the future. But you started to see downturns in, in, in other sectors like computer and in, uh, and in the software side. And I saw you talked about AI in the last session also. And obviously healthcare has always uh, been a very strong sector as well. We, we saw a 70% increase, almost 70% increase in AI related jobs in the financial sector month over month so more jobs in wow. the financial sector looking at AI and that's not just uh, customer support but it's customer support it's analysis it's regulations it's really across an entire financial services portfolio and that might be pointing to you know as we've talked about sort of this rolling uh, layoff side uh, this these rolling layoffs financial services might see more of those sometime in 24 as the benefits of AI uh, affect the overall labor market, obviously lowering opex as well.
1: Well, be, we'll hear a lot more about that, I imagine. It would be interesting to get the CEOs' take as well. Kind of talk to us a little bit about what they're what they're doing and what they're seeing. Evan, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Thanks
6: so much, Kelly. Have a great
1: day. Evan Recruiter.com's chairman. And coming up, airline stocks have had a mixed few quarters, but there's one company uniquely positioned to take advantage of the rebound in air travel, and its stock is flying at an all-time high. The CEO of Aircap joins us next. Plus, we are talking homes for the holidays, and the street's number one home building analyst for eight years running says one very specific set of stocks are best positioned into 2024. Evercore's Stephen Kim is here to make his case. As we go to break, here's a glance at the markets, which are pretty much near session highs. The Dow up 90, the S&P up three quarters of a percent, so the Dow's the laggard, and the NASDAQ up 1.3 percent today. Ten-year yield right around 411. We're back after this.
7: This is The Exchange on CNBC.
8: Picture this. It's Saturday morning, and you're on your John Deere compact tractor. You're effortlessly breaking ground on your new landscaping project. Next, you're moving piles of rocks just by moving a lever. And now, you're enjoying the warmth of the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. We could keep trying to put you in the moment, but to really understand everything you can do with a John Deere compact tractor, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at JohnDeere.com get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.
0: Welcome back
1: to The Exchange. As airlines try to add capacity to keep up with demand, air leasing company Aircap is uniquely positioned to take advantage of the rebound in travel and the lack of aircraft supply. And it's pushing the stock toward a new all-time high. Phil LeBeau joins us now with the CEO of Aircap, Gus Kelly. Phil and Gus, welcome. Thank
9: Thank you, Kelly. Kelly. Gus, I appreciate you joining us today. Uh, I'm curious Uh, You heard Kelly set up there, and you're seeing what's happening in terms of demand around the world. What's your take as you look into 2024, especially when it comes to international travel? Phil, it's good to be on. It's
7: pretty robust all around the world. When it comes to international traffic out of the U.S., the biggest market in the world, the most lucrative, is the North Atlantic market. And that's still booming. We don't see that changing. But, Phil, a real driver of airline profitability for the medium term is going to be the supply environment. The worst enemy of the airlines is too many seats chasing too few passengers. And so long as we have more passengers and then we have seats, things are going to be fine. And the issues that the industry faces because of the production problems with Boeing, with Airbus, and then the durability of the airplanes when they get into service is, in my view, gonna result in supply shortages for the rest of the decade.
9: You think the rest of this decade we see a supply shortage even as we start to gradually see an increase in production from Boeing and from Airbus? Well, Phil, they will produce more aircraft.
7: Now, since 2018, if you just took 2018 as the regular way production level of Boeing and Airbus. We're almost 3,000 aircraft light of that over what they've managed to produce in the last five years. So if they had kept 2018 production levels um, throughout the last five years, there'd be 3,000 more aircraft in the world. Bear in mind, Boeing and Airbus will only make about 1,200 aircraft a year. So even when they do get back to those levels of production, the challenge... That faces the industry is the technology of these aircraft, the aircraft and the engines just do not
9: say that again, Phil. I'm sorry to interrupt you there, Angus. Are you comfortable with that technology or are you saying even as you see advancements in things like fuel efficiency and lower emissions, uh, the technology is just not developing fast enough?
7: It's not durable enough, Phil. It will get better. But the problem is, when the engines come off wing faster than anyone expected, the network isn't there to repair these engines, the parts aren't there to repair them, the spare engines aren't there. So at a simple level, historically you might have needed 10 aircraft to fly a certain route. Now you need 11. And in Aircap's position, we are the largest owner of aircraft in the world by uh, country mile, to be honest. Uh, We're the largest owner of spare engines in the world. And we've seen significant increases in aircraft values, lease rates. And the way the airlines are reacting, Phil, is what they're doing is they're saying to me, we need to hold on to these older aircraft for much longer than we ever thought because we cannot rely on the durability of the new technology assets. And it's going to be a long time before Boeing and Airbus get back to the levels of production they want. So we see that lasting, as I said, for the best part of the rest of this decade.
1: That's fascinating, Gus. If I can just jump in and ask you one question, maybe it's relevant, maybe it's not. You know, we are in the middle of uh, finding out what's going to happen with the JetBlue Spirit merger, Hawaiian and Alaska. How does—do you have a kind of a a take on the consolidation? Does it, overall, um, lead to more demand for planes or less?
7: Yeah, I, I don't think it'll move demand for aircraft much, but I think it'll make the airlines stronger. Airlines are so capital-intensive, such massive operating leverage, that scale is vital. And if you're sub-scale airlines, it's hard to compete with the really big players in the industry. Um, so that'd be what I'd say more, Kelly, is that I think the benefits of the mergers of the consumer are that there is more staying power. There's airlines that can compete with the four incumbents here in the U.S. market at any rate.
9: Gus, I'm curious from your perspective and what are you hearing from your customers when it comes to the Pratt & Whitney geared turbofan engine issues? As as Pratt & Whitney tries to work through that, a number of these engines have come off the plane. Uh, they got to be repaired, but it's, t- it's going to take some time. How much is that impacting your customers in terms of their networks and their operations? Phil, there are significant impacts. So first
7: of all, you're going to have a lot of aircraft on the ground next year. These are expensive machines, 60 million dollar machines, pilot costs, a lot of fixed costs in the airline around those aircraft. And they're not going to get delivery of the ones uh, that they had expected to get. But From our perspective, what we see, the real solution here is that Pratt & Whitney, I believe, they will fix this issue, but it's going to take a long time. And it's going to be a bumpy ride. So what needs to happen for the airlines in the next few years is that Airbus and Pratt & Whitney have to sit down and say, we are just not going to be able to deliver as many airplanes as you want, Airbus. That just isn't going to happen because the airlines, they don't need another aircraft. If they have a $60 million machine sitting on the runway because the engine doesn't work, what they need is a spare engine. They need the engine that's on the wing repaired. All of this will get done in time, Phil, and everybody in the industry just has to step back, be it, the owners of the aircraft like Aircap, the manufacturers like Airbus, the airlines and the engine guys and say, what's best for the long term health of our customers? And that's going to require Airbus and Pratt to sit down and say, we need to come to an arrangement where we can manage the situation for our customers. Because just telling the customer you've got to buy another $60 million aircraft, another one, another one, it's not going to end well for the customers. So that's the biggest challenge over the course of the next few years. And Pratt will get there, but it's going to take a long time. It'll take a year just to repair one of these engines. So that means that the aircraft's on the ground for a, a very long time, unless they can get access to spare engines or parts. And we're doing our best to help. As I said, we're extending aircraft with airlines. We're selling aircraft to airlines. Just this year alone, um, we will probably sure. buy, sell or lease 1,000 aircraft, okay. engines and helicopters And Boeing and Airbus. Airbus only produce 700 assets. So that gives you an idea of the level of insight we have to what's happening every day in the global
9: industry. Hey, Gus. Gus, I hate to cut you off, but I'm being told we're getting pushed up against a break. (laughs) We're going to be watching this next year, and I know we'll be talking more. Uh, Gus Kelly, the CEO of AirCap. Appreciate you joining us today and for some perspective on what's happening with commercial airplanes. Kelly, I'll send it back to you.
1: That was fascinating. Gus and Phil, please come back anytime. Uh, super interesting to hear his candid take on what's going on with those engine problems and more. We appreciate it. Coming up, this retailer is having an unbelievable three-week streak with only one down day in that time. The CEO taking a page out of Bob Iger's playbook, returning to the company after retiring, although they do face growing competition from China. If you think you know this one, tweet me at Kelly CNBC will reveal it after the break. Welcome back. It's time for Show & Tell, where we show you a chart and tell the story. Dollar General was the mystery chart we showed you before the break, moving fractionally lower after beating earnings estimates and reiterating its full-year guidance. But the shares are up more than 15% in the past three weeks, with only one down day in that time. Here's what Todd Vesos, who just came out of retirement to return as CEO, said on the earnings call about the state of the consumer.
4: Our customer continues to tell us they are feeling significant pressure on their spending, which is supported by what we see in their behavior. Based on these trends and what we see in the macroeconomic environment, we anticipate customer spending may continue to be constrained as we head into 2024, especially in
6: discretionary categories.
1: And those macro pressures aren't the only thing investors may be worried about. New data shows a surge in sales at Chinese e-commerce giants, Xi'an and Timu, is even creating some welcome havoc in the air cargo market fully loaded planes, it means more competition for Dollar General in an already tight retail environment. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for the CNBC News update.
10: Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much. Donald Trump is appealing a judge ruling that he said he is not immune from criminal prosecution in his D.C. election obstruction case. Trump's legal team argues that the former president cannot face criminal charges because his actions fell under presidential duties. The appeal contends the federal criminal case should end altogether and that upcoming deadlines should be delayed, including the March 4 trial date. Georgia state lawmakers gave final passage to a redrawn congressional map and are sending it to a judge for approval. The new version adds the court-ordered black majority district, but still maintains a nine-to-five edge for Republicans in the state. The map is expected to be signed by Governor Brian Kemp, but is likely to end up right back in federal court. Meantime, opposition activists in Russia are putting up billboards urging citizens to vote against President Vladimir Putin in next year's election. The billboards are disguised as a New Year's greeting with a QR code that leads to a website called Russia Without Putin. The anti-corruption foundation founded by the imprisoned leader Alexei Navalny paid for billboards in major Russian cities, including Moscow and St. Petersburg. Kelly, back to you. See you in a little bit.
0: Tyler,
1: thank you so much. Tyler Matheson. Coming up, we'll check on the home builders with mortgage rates plunging a full percentage point in less than two months. You can see we're 7.07, almost to a six handle. That's pushed the ITB home construction ETF to a new all-time high. It's on track for a six straight week of gains, its longest stretch in a year and a half. More details after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. The home construction ETF, ITB, is up again today after hitting an all-time high yesterday. The CEO of Toll Brothers taking a bow on behalf of all the builders for having navigated a difficult housing environment on CNBC earlier today.
4: You know, this industry really should be looked at hard for a re-rating because these companies are structurally run differently, and for us to have the business we're having in the face of these rates, yeah, I'm just super proud of not just Toll Brothers, but I'm super proud of how this group is now being run, and we just deserve more respect
1: my next guest agrees. In fact, he was early to call that this would happen. He just raised his price target on several big builder stocks and is especially bullish on two of them because of their direct exposure to single-family starts. Let's bring in Stephen King. Stephen Kim, he's Home Builders Analyst at Evercore ISI. Stephen, it's great to see you again. Welcome back.
11: Thanks very much for having me.
1: So, by, by the way, I'm just going to throw this out there, is that a, is that a deserved uh, bow, or are we going to look back on this as, as a sign of the times and go, ah, well... The building trade was about to implode and, you know, we all should have seen it coming and that kind of thing.
11: You know, I think that this idea that the the builders are going to implode is something that actually has provided the wall of worry for them to climb uh, over the last really, you know, several years. Um, ever since the pandemic hit, people were wrongly thinking that the housing market was going to uh, suffer, and then when it actually subsequently roared, uh, at, people said, "Well, it's got to be the rates," and when the rates surged. Um, to a level that we've really all, probably nobody expected, you know, two years ago, people were convinced the housing stocks and the housing market in general was going to collapse. And that really hasn't happened at all. And so now we're in a very interesting phase where people are beginning to say, why not? Why why have things happened the way they have? Why have the builders proven to be so resilient? People want to know. And the housing, well, in the investment community is very honest. You know, they they don't they don't care about yesterday. They care about being right tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And that I think is setting the stage for the revaluation that Doug was referring to just now.
1: And a few of the investors who dipped into this space last year when the multiples were at four and five and, and just very low levels are now thinking maybe I can take Take some profits here why do you think that could be too early or a mistake well there's a
11: couple of numbers that i'd throw at you first of all that the small cap home builders right now are trading at 1.15 of book value uh, book value is probably going to grow at least uh, 15% this upcoming year. So effectively, they're trading at almost one times book value uh, you know, in a year from now. Uh, that's an incredibly low valuation. It almost implies that the people think that these stocks, these companies might not even be around you know, long term. So uh, really, really inexpensive valuations just on a book basis. On an earnings basis, they're in the high single digits It's very hard to find companies uh, that are, you know, solid companies trading at high single-digit PEs. Uh, We think that the stocks are going to ultimately trade at least to the low double digits on a PE basis, and we think a further revaluation, even higher, could very well be in the offing over the next few years.
1: Yeah, that's kind of what uh, Toll's CEO is referring to. You know, they're still trading at seven times, and he's arguing, "Hey, come on, we should deserve a premium multiple for what's just happened." A couple of of different questions I just want to bounce off you. I mean, one. is implicit in everything that you're talking about is this idea that everyone missed the fact that these are need-based buyers. So we're starting to hear people say, well, but now rents you know, are cheapening and that might, drive some, might peel some people off. If these are need-based buyers, I'm not so sure about that. And then the only thing I'd wonder for next year is, could actually a, a, a headwind for this space be if rates decline and all of a sudden the existing home sales inventory really comes onto the market as people feel like they can move again?
11: Yeah, very, I'm glad you asked that or set that question up because this is, uh, in our report, something that we put right at the front. Uh, the, the, basically, these two questions. How can people be affording houses when affordability, it looks so bad? And right. the answer is that the buyer is not the same buyer. If you look at affordability only through the lens of uh, the kinds of buyers that we historically saw who were in their early or sorry, late 20s, um, well, yeah. I mean, th- you would think that nobody could afford. However, most of the first-time buyers are not in their late 20s. They're actually almost 10 years older. Yep. People who are in their late 30s have higher incomes, they have longer established credit histories, and they have more urgency. Uh, and I think all of that is coming to bear here as to uh, helping uh, explain why people are actually buying houses, even though theoretically the affordability should be so bad. The second thing which you touched on is this question of, well, what happens if mortgage rates fall and all these people who have these low-rate mortgages say, well, you know what, okay, I'll move. And then they got to list their home and they're going to see this flood of inventory. And isn't that going to be bad for the housing market and for the home builders? And what we have said is absolutely not. First of all, uh, lower rates, as we all know, instinctively, low rates is good for builders. And, for, and to understand the explanation in this particular wrinkle, it's this, it's, it's this point. The number of new home sales that you make each year is not related to the number of resales and it's not related to people moving. It's related to the number of new homeowners you have coming into the market. You got to build a home for that person and you're going to sell it in If I told you next year that housing starts would be zero, you would know for certain that new home sales would be zero, but existing home sales could be any number. You could have any number of people moving next year, selling houses to each other, but if housing starts are zero, new home sales are gonna be zero. So new home sales and existing home sales are not the same thing intrinsically. So you should not be worried. If next year, more people decide to move, You're not going to sell fewer new home sales, and it's not going to be bad for the builders. Instinctively, we all know that. Lower rates is good for builders. You can rest assured that that actually is going to be true next year.
1: Real quickly, and and probably most to the point, but just in in two seconds if you can, what are the names you're most bullish on of the space? I
11: think the builders have the clearest path near term to upside, along with uh top build, uh, which is, and IVP the installation uh, mm-hmm. installation installers. Uh, we also like Owens Corning, but I think the builders have the clearest path upwards because they're trading on book value, and that book value is going to go up. The, the second thing I would say is within the builders, I think that larger cap names, particularly like a DR Horton, uh-huh. are most apt to get a re-rating like what Doug Yearly is referring to. I think that Horton has been at it the longest or the largest market cap, long only investors who would be important in driving this, they need market cap, they need yeah. liquidity. Horton is going to give it to you. Lennar will give it to you. Those names will probably revalue first.
1: That is a great point, too, about the kind of institutional demand. And it's up 50% this year. And that's the case uh, for them to keep on going higher. Stephen, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Stephen Kim with Evercore ISI. Coming up, shares of Alphabet having their best day since July. They're off the highs, too. They're only up 5% right now. All of this after yesterday's AI announcements. We'll look at what has investors so excited when we come back in just a moment. Dow at session highs as well. Welcome back. Shares of Alphabet now up five percent today, having a delayed reaction to the launch of their Gemini AI model yesterday. Let's get out to Deirdre Bosa for more on today's tech check. You know, Deirdre, come on! In this day and age, a twenty-four hour re- it, you know, and we talked about this <laughs> yesterday. You showed us the tape. Yes. And
0: here we are, twenty-four hours later, and everyone's like, "Wow!" I know. I could barely believe my eyes yesterday, especially after watching that six-minute video. I thought this is amazing. Why isn't the market recognizing this? But it was just delayed. So the stock didn't do anything yesterday, but it was up today at one point, some 6% for a very, very large cap company. Um, So very strong reaction. And maybe that tells us that the AI halo is still very much present, which we started to doubt yesterday, and that Google has now won an edge in this AI, AI arms race that we've been watching all year. Now, what Kelly said, you really have to see and hear Gemini's technology and the latest developments in generative AI to really understand the impact that it could have. So I'm bringing you another example from that Google presentation. Have a look.
7: I know what you're doing. You're playing rock, paper, scissors. What do you see now? The fingers are spread out to look like the wings of a butterfly. What's this? Big ear and barking mouth, a dog.
0: If that didn't kind of amaze you, here's one more example.
1: What movie are they acting out here?
7: I think they are acting out the famous bullet time scene from The Matrix.
0: Now, I highly recommend the entire six-minute video. Other examples include Gemini understanding colors, 3D objects. It creates games and even cracks jokes. Now, the word to describe this next evolution in AI is multimodal. That means it incorporates audio, video, images, and you're going to hear that word a lot more, Kelly. So I'm keeping this short and simple and hoping that video speaks for itself. Um, Again, maybe part of the reason it was more subdued yesterday is that this is being rolled out in phases, and it does kind of feel like it was rushed. Google doesn't often have events between Thanksgiving and Christmas, and the most powerful version won't be available widely until next year. So that could be part of it as well. But clearly, some pretty interesting demonstrations yeah. there maybe
1: if we wait a day then the shares will be
0: down and then yeah oh
1: wait but not yet part of this Deirdre for now thanks we appreciate it our dear Bosa out west still ahead three more names on deck with earnings and my next guest says one of them is setting up for games post report based on one recent trend she's noticed we've got the trades for Broadcom Lulu and Vale Resorts after this Welcome back. Semis, sweats, and snow are the subjects of today's earnings exchange. Marianne Montaigne is here with our trades. She's Gradient Investments Portfolio Manager. Marianne, welcome back to you. Let's start with Broadcom. I feel like it's an audience favorite. Uh, Coming off all-time highs near the end of November when that acquisition of VMware closed, Oppenheimer says the deal should add $15 billion to top-line growth each year, along with AI and hardware partnerships with Apple and Google supporting their bullish call. You like the stock here? I do. First of all, though,
12: I have to say happy holidays to everybody. Thank you. And I'm wishing everyone light and peace. Um, Now, as to Broadcom, this stock has performed very well. Uh, It's up 45% over the last two years. Uh, What AMD had to say yesterday about AI and cloud computing is only positive for Broadcom. Uh, we expect that um, those uh, uh, synergies coming out of the VMware acquisition will be very powerful, and we expect management to talk about them today to put some numbers around that. So we still think there's mid-teens upside in this name with a, a 2% dividend yield.
1: All right. Let's move on to Lululemon then. Uh, off that 52, from Just off that 52-week high, Ray J watching the higher-end consumer saying growth in China, men's, uh, and promotional activity should all combat some of the softness in the luxury space or the aspirational space. Would you stick with this one?
12: I would. You know, they had about twelve percent same store sales growth last quarter. Compare that to minus five plus percent out of target, um, and we think that it's strongly driven by China, where sales were up sixty percent last quarter. Six zero. Um, wow. We think that uh, there's been some. Uh, short selling uh, in the month of November. And we think the stock will pop on today's report.
1: All right. Going ahead with a bold call on earnings. I love it. Okay. Vail Resorts is our last one down for the year. Uh, Stiefel pointing to their Epic Pass program and some new acquisitions as a potential catalyst. It's a supply constrained business. There's no new mountains. Uh, and they, but they also think skiers are res- recession resilient. You agree?
12: well i'm not so sure about recession resilient that's like being a little bit pregnant uh, but talk about the sales of preseason sales that is the passes annual passes Those were very strong, they were up about 11% in dollars. And also you see a 15 to 20% increase in seats from airlines going to their properties. Hmm. So I think combine that with unfavorable weather conditions last year, and you've got a few tailwinds going on here. Also a more normalized labor market and other efficiencies. Uh, and, And there's a front range passenger rail that just got approval from the federal government that should help bring people over the longer term We haven't been buyers of this. It's been a pretty bad performer uh, in recent months. But um, we're interested in in watching for the results today. Uh, With a 3.85% dividend yield, I think it's worth watching.
1: In a bullish mood today, Marianne, we'll let you go. Thank you so much for your time, Marianne Marianne Montaigne. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Power Lunch is next. Tyler and I will join you on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
8: From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive.